Good morning. Uh, my name is Neil Tullis. Get to serve as a youth pastor. I'm convinced I've got the greatest job in the world and also one probably none of y'all want. So I do feel safe in that. Nothing against y'all teenagers. Um, um, I did get a complaint about first sermon uh, of the first service. Um, it went short. Um, so I, I apologize and I hope y'all can accept that today, but it's too late to rewrite the sermon. So you're going to get about an extra 10 minutes at the end of the message. Chip will get it back in a few weeks, so don't worry about that. Um, story takes place 10th grade year of high school. I'd have had my driver's license a year or so back when we at 15, we were mature enough to drive. Unlike teenagers today, where we've, we've had to push it back to 16. But back then uh, at 15, we were so mature, they let us drive and get licensed and do all types of things. The school bell rings at the end of the day and I walk out the door and walk over to the school parking lot where my car is waiting. Um, uh, it's not my car. I use that the way your son or daughter probably uses the word my car also. Um, it was my mom's car, maybe. It was the 89 Bonneville, so it's about five or six years old in this story. Not the greatest car in the world to drive as a high school student, but um, it could have also been my grandmother's car, which was actually my grandmother's aunt's car when my great aunt or whatever that would make her to me passed away. My grandmother inherited her car, although my mamma never had a driver's license, or as far as I know, never drove her car out of the driveway her whole life. And that beautiful car was a 1983, 82 baby blue Plymouth. Um, yeah, not the car you dream of driving when you get your driver's license, but that's one of those two I was driving every once in a while, mom would give me her car instead of my great, great aunt's car. So I get to the parking lot and I realize I've got a flat tire. It's on the uh, uh, rear tire on the driver's side. And um, I don't know a whole lot about cars at that time and really still don't, but I knew I couldn't drive it that way. And also knew that none of the lessons dad had taught me in the past about changing the tires, I watched him do it, had not stuck enough. So I hitch a ride home with somebody, tell mom you know, what happened and dad gets home from work and before dinner or after dinner sometime, we hop in his Explorer, we drive back to the school parking lot and we go to change a tire. My expectation is that we're going to change this tire like dad and I changed other tires is he's going to change the tire and he's going to tell me what to do. And I'm going to own look and mainly, you know, drift in and out of consciousness through the process, not remember any of it. And, you know, that's what it, how we change tires. But this time dad told me to get down and I would be the one to get dirty and greasy and nasty. And he was going to tell me. I don't know if dad was thinking strategically about this or maybe he was just fed up of me not learning any of the lessons he had been teaching me for a while but that day I did learn. Uh, he told me um, how to get a brick or rock or find something in order to put under one of those rear tires to make sure the car wouldn't roll off when you get it jacked up off the ground. Where to go looking in the trunk to find the lug wrench and to find the jack and find the tools that you would need. How to go ahead and loosen up the, those uh, lug nuts before you get it off the ground. So, so when you do have it elevated, it doesn't rock off the jack. Where to position the jack right under the frame next to the wheel well. So when you lift it up, it, you know, the car doesn't shift or collapse. And then once you get the, the car elevated, how to loosen up the, those lug nuts the rest of the way, take them off, put the spare tire on, back yourself out of that same process, and then plug a tire and go through the process once again. Seemed like to me at that age, it had to be 100 steps in changing a tire. But to the best of my knowledge, nobody ever told me how to do it again. Because when I heard dad tell me how to do it in the past, I'd even watched him do it many times, none of those lessons had stuck with me. And for me, it's often when I actually do something myself that it sticks. And that's what I want to talk to us about today. 
is when it comes to your faith, how do you actually own it for yourself? How do you really learn what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus? I mean, think if you want to learn how to swim and not swim like do a cannonball off the diving board and, and doggy paddle over to the, to the side of the pool, but really swim. Like swim like Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky swim. Now, we'll probably never be them in the water because they look like a fish. But you can watch all the YouTube clips in the world and watch other people swim and watch their gold medal races and see how they did it. But that's not really teaching you how to swim. You might be able to tell somebody all the things to do and the strokes to take and when to take your breaths and how to do a kick turn and all those things. But eventually, you got to put on a swimsuit and some goggles and a swim cap and hop in the water yourself. In order to swim, you got to swim. Same thing your grandmother knew when she was trying to teach you how to bake a cake or homemade pie or that homemade loaf of bread that's absolutely just delicious. She probably didn't hand you a recipe card and just said, follow this, because we've probably had the experience of following a recipe just as it says, and it don't turn out anything like grandma's homemade cake. Or dad knew when he was teaching you how to drive. He didn't just give you an owner's manual of a vehicle or enroll you in a driver's ed class and say, now you know how to drive. He had to be brave enough to shift over to the passenger seat and let you put your hand on the wheel and foot on the grass and hopefully every once in a while on the brake also and drive for yourself because it's in doing that we truly learn. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes a couple of thousand years ago. You know your time is limited. You've had maybe 33 years is all you're going to have here on the earth. And only about three of those you're going to have are the group of 12 that you're investing in primarily. And within that 12, there's three guys that you're really targeting. But then there is a greater community of people that are following him around and watching the miracles and seeing the sermons. But how do you take those people from being observers of the master teacher, observers of the miracle workers, to people who not only will believe what Jesus believed, but will do what Jesus did? doesn't have access to videos like we do now that you could press a button and be shared and reshared and shared before long. Even one of our videos might have thousands of views. He doesn't have the technology that we have. He won't even travel that far. And he's with a group of men who don't even have political freedom. So what would you do? He did the same thing your math teacher did. Remember how easy it is, or some of y'all still going through the process of you see the teacher do a math problem on the board? And man, that looks so simple. You can go back to what you were doing in class and, and not pay her any attention. But then she gives you the worksheet and tells you to work all the evens or all the odds or whatever they tell you to do these days. And you stare at that sheet of paper and what looks so easy for the teacher or the professor to do on the chalkboard? Man, you don't have a clue about it now. But it's through walking back through those steps and doing problem after problem after problem after problem. Even somebody like me, 20 years since I've had a math class almost, I could still walk you through at least a few of those beginner, uh, beginner algebraic equations. Because when you learn, so you learn something by doing it. And so that's what Jesus does. He's got to prepare this group of 12 guys to not only believe what he believes, not only to have an intellectual knowledge, but to go out and do it. So open, if you will, to uh, the book of Mark, the sixth chapter, and then verses seven through 12. Give you a plug for reading Mark on your own. It's, um, 
If you ever just wanted to read the story of Jesus, the account of Jesus, and you prefer to take as little time as possible to do so, choose Mark. He gives us like the, the quick version of everything, what it might take Matthew or Luke or John to say in a page. Mark gets it down into a few sentences or paragraphs, so you might miss a few of the details that Matthew or Luke gives us, but you'll get the gist of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And uh, this is the shortest gospel that we have. But Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He, he charged them to take nothing for their journey uh, except a, a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, proclaimed the people they should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. When I read this passage, I'm not a musician, but here's the thing that came to my mind. Going to whoever your favorite musician is in the big arena or the concert hall they're playing in, and you've got a backstage pass, and you're just right over there backstage watching the show. And your favorite musician has played their first three or four songs. The crowd is going wild, people coming from everywhere to hear them. And then the musician steps aside and steps to you and says, your turn. Why in the world would you want me to get on stage and try to strum a guitar when you got the incredible musician right before you? At this moment, the disciples have seen Jesus wow the crowds with his messages. Some of we, we know by heart. You didn't even have to try to memorize some of the things Jesus said, but they're so good, it's just stuck with us, stuck through generation and people all across the globe through the years. They've seen Jesus heal a man with a withered hand just by speaking to him. The guy reached out his hand and it's healed. There's Jairus' daughter who's been healed by Jesus. There's the woman in the crowd where Jesus is passing through, people pressing in all around, but he, had, he has time to stop and speak to this one woman. In Mark chapter 5, there's an absolutely bizarre story of a man who's got no sense and even fewer clothes on when they meet him in the cemetery. Jesus has taken the disciples over into what they would have probably seen as enemy territory. And they get off the boat, this absolutely demon-possessed, crazy man meets him on the shoreline. He's been kicked out of his community, kicked out of his city. They chained him up in a cemetery, but the chains and shackles, the Bible says, couldn't hold him. Jesus meets him, and in an instant, his mind is made right. The demons are cast out. He would beg with, beg with Jesus to, go to get to be one of the disciples, get to get in the boat and travel around Galilee with Jesus and the rest of the guys. Jesus says, no, it's better for you to stay at home, and he becomes a missionary back to his own town. Goes back home, and people cannot believe the same crazy man that changed up in the cemetery is now in his right mind, and many would believe on his account. They had seen Jesus do all of this. So, wouldn't it have been a better use of Jesus' time for him to go do miracles and to give more sermons? None of these guys would deliver as good of a message as Jesus would. None of these guys had the faith that Jesus had to do miracles. So what is Jesus up to? I think in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 12, we get a sneak peek into the classroom of Jesus. 
And he knew, just like your math teacher knew, that you couldn't just watch her do the problems on the board. And your grandmother knew you just didn't always want to just enjoy her cakes, that you needed to learn to do it yourself. And your dad knew that you couldn't just read an owner's manual or take a safety class at school to be a good driver. You would have to do it yourself. So Jesus sends the guys out. Remember PE class where the coach is dividing us up to play volleyball or softball or dodgeball, whatever the game was, and he starts numbering you off one, two, one, two, one, two, and we were all smart enough to realize we needed to put somebody between us to stack our team in order for we to win or at least be on a team of people that you liked, people that you were friends with. Remember that? Imagine you're in this scenario and Jesus starts numbering you off two by two to go out to serve. You're looking around to see who you're going to be going with. You realize you're going to be paired up with Bartholomew. And you realize even a couple of thousand years from now, church people are going to be wondering if Bartholomew was one of the 12 that were actually there. And do you really want to get stuck with somebody that nobody in history is really going to remember that well? And you're like, I don't want to be with Bartholomew. So step aside and me and Peter are now together. You say, Jesus, send me with Peter. Because you know in the back of your mind that Peter's going to run ahead. He's going to be gung-ho about this experience. You're probably going to get finished before any other group. And not only that, Peter ain't ever shy to say something, is he? He'll do all the talking. Peter's like the guy in your community group when the teacher asks somebody to pray or to read. You're always glad he or she is there because they always do it and you don't have to. That's Peter. So if I was there, I'd be Passover Bartholomew and give me Peter to go out to a group. And, or at least John. Um, John's his favorite or at least that's what John's always writing down in his journal book that he has over there and always scribbling down, I'm the one who Jesus loves. And you're like, well, at least send me with John. Jesus, you're telling us you're going to send us out to places and people aren't going to accept us. Teenagers, imagine me sending you out on a mission trip and just saying it's going to be a bad experience and telling you what to do when you have a miserable time. At least send me with John, because no matter what you do, Jesus, you ain't sending John to a too, too dangerous of a neighborhood. So send me with John. Let me go with him, because no matter what, at least I'll be safe. Imagine being in that experience. And Jesus sends the guys out. You notice what he says to take with them? Almost nothing. Generous enough to tell them to take a staff, a walking stick, and a pair of sandals. Teens, can you imagine me sending you a what to bring list? And that's all that's on there. How many calls and emails and complaints could I possibly get? Nobody would probably show up at the bus the next day. So many people would be complaining about what in the world is going on. But remember, I think this is a classroom environment and Jesus is preparing the guys for what's ahead. This moment, this experience would teach them to depend on God and God alone. Acts chapter 3. Think with me. Peter and John are on the way to the temple to pray. A beggar, a lame man, unable to walk, stops them. And says, can you help me? The man's completely dependent on others to pass out alms, to give alms in order for his daily survival. You remember what they say to him? Silver or gold we do not have. Just like in Mark chapter 6. But what we do have, we give to you. They tell him to stand, rise, and walk in the name of Jesus. They put into practice exactly in Acts chapter 3, after Jesus had departed them, what Jesus had taught them in Mark chapter 6. We learn by doing. And Jesus here is giving the guys instructions on what they are to do. What was the message they would go out and preach? 
It's almost the exact same message that they had heard Jesus preach before. We only get just a little snippet of it. It says believe or, or to repent and believe in Jesus there towards the end of this passage. If you flip back in Mark or the other gospels and you read the messages of Jesus, that is consistently the same message that Jesus is preaching. Repent, believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. They did not come up with some fancy new message. They didn't develop their own sermon or speech. They simply repeated what they had heard Jesus do. And now Jesus had sent them out in order to go and to preach that same message to the crowds. They would get the experience of preaching from place to place to place, likely small settings, probably in homes, and they would go and they would begin to face opposition. Why would Jesus send them out for, for, uh, uh, for a moment of failure, moments of rejection? Because Jesus knows moments of rejection and far greater uh, size are coming their way in the future. He knows what awaits these guys in the future, and he is preparing that for this moment. So he sends them out along the way. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when God's spirit has come on these guys. In Acts chapter 1, they have been gathered together and praying. Jesus gave them that final command uh, that they are to go and make disciples of all nations. He said, you'll begin right here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And remember that from Mark chapter 5, Jesus has already taken them into unfamiliar territory to prepare them for this moment. And he says to the ends of the earth, which was far bigger than they could have anticipated. And Jesus gives them this message to go out. So in Acts chapter 2, God's spirit comes on them in this unique way. These disciples stand up in the streets of Jerusalem. People from all different regions have come and they are able to preach. God's spirit was with them, yes, but they did have experience. Peter would stand before thousands, 3,000 of which would believe in his message of Jesus because they could remember for themselves just a month ago when Jesus had been executed but then resurrected three days later. And Peter delivers this message, which was even briefer than the sermon I'll give you today. And over and over, and he, he's asked, what should we do with this message? What should we do with the story of the resurrection? And over and over and over, Peter keeps repeating, repent, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, and be saved. Oftentimes, I've told teenagers and told others, and you probably heard other pastors too, say that this was Peter's first message, and 3,000 people responded, but it wasn't his first message. Because Jesus had sent them out to small areas and small audiences, maybe just a home crowd, to develop and work on his skill. Because Jesus knew the same thing that your math teacher knew when she was trying to teach you how to do algebra. Same thing your dad knew when he's trying to teach you how to drive or change a tire. The same thing grandma knew if you're wanting to learn how to make a homemade pie. They couldn't just give you a recipe card. They couldn't just give you an owner's manual. Couldn't just watch her do it in the classroom. You had to do it for yourself. And I think that is how we truly learn to be followers of Jesus. So what's the application for today's message? What do you do with this? Do you just sign up for a mission trip? And um, in your bulletin, you've already seen an announcement about the Portugal trip that's coming up this November, and you'll hear about it in a video here in a few minutes. Man, I think that'd be an absolutely wonderful application of this message. Maybe you start saving up your dollars and setting time aside for next spring break when we go to Victoria, Canada and put on another basketball camp and partner with Canvas Church. If you're a teenager, you set aside a week next spring break to go wherever we'll be going. If you're a youth worker, jump on board with us. Maybe you wait for that next opportunity. We go to Mark's and work with Reclaim Project and do uh, work with the, the school and the teachers there, resourcing there. 
Those would all be tremendous ways to respond to this message. But I do think you'd be selling yourself short. Because Jesus wasn't setting these guys up just to go out on a mission trip type experience. We learn incredible things and we can do great good through those. But he's preparing them for after he's gone. And how will they live their life? I think the better application for this message is for you to wake up in the morning and to do what Jesus has told us to do. You may say, well, I don't know all of that. I hadn't read through Mark like you talked about earlier. I hadn't memorized much of the Bible, but you likely know the story of the Good Samaritan. You know that one and you could do it. Yeah, it'll be uncomfortable and it'll be challenging. It'll take some courage for you, but opportunity will arise tomorrow or the next day or not soon thereafter. And for you to take time and resources of your own in order to sacrifice and serve somebody else in the name of Jesus. Or maybe it's when a difficult person walks into your office tomorrow morning or maybe it's on the other side of the bed from you in the morning when you wake up. And you take time. Remember Jesus at the well, he's gotta be tired. We know he was hungry, we know he was thirsty. And this woman who is an outcast from society comes walking up, she's not allowed to gather with the rest of the women to do her chores of getting water. But yet Jesus has time for her and it changed her life. And I know we can't allow people to completely drain all of our times and I understand that. But I knew, do know there should be some times when you stop to have conversations with maybe somebody who's an outcast or difficult to get along with or maybe they're just an energy drain on you. There should be some moments when you follow the style of Jesus and you do have time for somebody who's difficult. What about forgiving the person that you've been holding back on forever now? You don't have to know all the Bible to know what God says about forgiveness. Think of the, baby, of the lady who was caught in adultery. These men haul her in in front of Jesus. Jesus takes all the attention off of her, writes something on the ground. He stands up and he faces these, these men in opposition. He says, whoever doesn't have any sin in your life, go ahead and throw the first stone. And of course, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, those men begin to walk off. And Jesus shows compassion and grace and forgiveness. And it's likely the person you've been resisting to forgive, they probably don't deserve it. But you do remember that Romans Road verse you learned as a kid. Romans 5.8, that while you are yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And just as you are completely unworthy of God's forgiveness, he's forgave you. So you too, because you're a follower of his, will turn and forgive somebody else. For you to act tomorrow the next day and for me to join you in behaving and doing what Jesus would do. If Jesus was in your family, if he was in your workplace, if he was in your classroom, if he was in your dorm room, if he was in your apartment, and you to do. So what would Jesus do? There's no doubt when the opportunity arises, would Jesus tell somebody about how to have salvation and eternal life in God? Absolutely he would. And so you do know that verse about John 3.16 or John 14.6, and you could tell somebody how God has saved you. And you take those moments that God brings along your path and you use it. James chapter 1, verse 22, James is the brother of Jesus. And he says, don't deceive yourself. You can't be a hearer of God's word only. You got to be a doer. I don't have to convince you that you got to have more than church attendance or even Bible knowledge to be a true follower of Christ. Because we all know Bible verses that we don't really keep. And you all probably have an aunt or a grandmother or a relative of some sort or another 
that's got a Bible verse for everything that comes up in life and can point out all the wrongs. And while he or she may know all the Bible verses, you just never really sense much Jesus in them. So we know it takes more than coming to church on a Sunday morning and maybe even being in a D group or community group and knowing most of the hymns that we sing in order to be a true father of Christ. So father advice, your algebra teacher and your dad teaching you to drive a car and your grandmother teaching you to bake a cake and get in the game. Don't just be an observer of Christianity, but be a participant. Um, William Carey is a man that was born in the 18th century in England, and he had a quote that I often share with, with our teens, an incredible message, and his life's an incredible story. If you were to Google his name, you'll see that one of the first things you'll probably see is that he is known as the father of modern missions. At the age of 32, he had moved from his comforts in England and moved to the nation of India. When he got there, he would provide a school for children that were neglected, teach them to read, teach them to write, teach them a lot about Jesus as well. He also would form a seminary in order to train and, and educate Indian pastors in order to help spread Christianity. And here's a quote that he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. When Jesus divides up those guys two by two to send them out, think of all they had seen Jesus do. They had seen him do miracles, Guess what? They expected God to do miracles and they were bravey, brave and crazy enough to go out and do it on their own. They had seen how people had responded to Jesus' call for repentance and they went out and did that. So that's my challenge for you for this week is that you would expect God to do what only God could do. And you don't settle for only being an observer of Christianity. You become a participant, you become a doer and you go out and you act and behave and do what Jesus would do if he was in your shoes this week. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for today and grateful for your moment, this moment, grateful for your word and be able to get an inside peek at the classroom of how you would educate and train men to not only believe what you believe, but to do what, what you would come and do. So God, give us the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to go out and do it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.